Well, again, welcome, and uh, we're so glad you're here. And I, I failed to mention this earlier. If you're family or friends of any of the families that underwent baptism this morning, a special welcome to you. So glad you came to be a part of that, and please make yourself at home. Feel welcome here. We're in a series, it's a short series, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, the book of Ruth. And this is a short series on a short book from the Old Testament. So we're in part three this morning. And we're going to look at a large passage. We're going to look at all of chapter three and part of chapter four. And if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin there. That's all there. But we'll start at the beginning of Ruth chapter three. Something that I try to watch on myself and I, I try to remind us of occasionally is that Christians are really prone to fall, in, uh, to fall into using lingo. We have our own sort of Christian lingo, Christianese, people call it. So, you know, if, now if you've grown up with it, it doesn't seem weird, but if you haven't grown up with it, it can sound really weird. Like Christians who've grown up in the church may have heard people say, yeah, I invited Jesus into my heart, and that's completely normal to them, and to someone who hasn't grown up with that, that sounds really weird, really weird. I, I had this experience one time. Pretty soon after I moved here, I was uh, chatting with a woman. I think she was a physical therapist, and she'd just, you know, get to know you and ask, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, what, what does that mean, you're a pastor? And she wasn't being rude. She just, I'm used to that term, and she, she wasn't. And I'm bringing this up because there's a term that is, it's in the Bible. It's not just lingo, so it's biblical vocabulary, but Christians will talk about redemption, or they'll use the word redeem. And the way that might play out is you, if you had a Christian say, I believe that I've been redeemed by blood. What, what that person's probably trying to convey is, I believe that I have been forgiven by God through what Jesus did. I've been cleansed by God through what Jesus did and that, that definitely holds water. But the language of redemption is the language of, of purchase. You know, businesses use the term redeem or redemption that have nothing to do with Christianity or, or the Bible. To, to speak about redemption is to say that, that God's people are bought by God. Or to say that I'm a redeemed person means that, that God purchased me and, and owns me. So I want us to think about this as we come to this text. Uh, th- that, that, that wording, redeem, redemption, redeemer, is just all through this passage. And I want us to look at this because this is a truthful account of something that happened in the lives of these people. And uh, in fact, the account this morning is kind of PG-13. And you can figure that out as we, as we go. And I don't want to turn it into an allegory. These are real people. It's not presented in Scripture as a myth or a fable or an allegory. But it is a window into what is redemption. If we're the people that talk about God redeemed me, God bought me, we, we sang that just now in one of our songs, that God bought us. What are we saying? And there's a window into that through this passage. Now, just for review, if you haven't been here... Two main characters, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. Naomi, an Israelite, was married to a man named Elimelech. It was famine. They moved away from Israel to a pagan country, an outlier, uh, Moab. There she lost her husband, and she lost two sons. One of her sons, Naomi's sons, was married to Ruth. So both Naomi 
and her daughter-in-law Ruth have been left as widows. And they've moved back to Israel to the city of Bethlehem. Let's pick back up there. And they've met a gracious man, a helpful man, um, a relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And this man's name is Boaz. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, so she's saying to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, part of getting older is to uh, take on responsibility that others used to handle. And as you do so, you really begin to feel and experience how hard some of these things are. And it can be really something very simple. You know, when you're, when you're growing up, a meal is just something that appears in front of you, and you're possibly forced to eat it. And then you start taking care of your own food, and maybe, you know, you really learn what it's like to really make a meal from scratch for someone and have them into your home, and you want it to be right, and you spiff up ahead of time, and you realize, that's a lot harder than I thought it was, and I just kind of thought it magically appeared, but it's costly. Uh, maybe a deeper example, my, my wife and I have some friends who've adopted uh, a daughter from China. And just their recounting of all that led up to that point, because way, way, way before you go over, there's just the emotional involvement and the emotional um, buy-in, and then the journey, or maybe multiple journeys, and then the money. And they'll recount about at this point, you had to give this envelope with cash to this official. And at this point, this envelope with cash to this official. And they made a mistake on one of them. And it was stressful and hard and emotional and draining and very, just to be you know, kind of factual, very expensive. And I'm sure that as their daughter is growing up, that you know, she knows, wow, my parents did something very special for me. But she probably will have to get into her 30s or 40s or 50s to really feel what it cost for them to be willing and to pray and to agonize and to journey and to spend and then really to change their whole family dynamic as she entered it. It was very costly. And maybe you can relate in different ways that things that maybe you didn't think about that much growing up. Now that you're a little bit older, now that you've tried new things, you say, wow, that's really hard. Or that takes a lot of money. Or that's extremely draining. 
And I, I want to take that and bring it to this word redeem. Because in Scripture, like many things, there's a very bad way to do something and there's a very good way to do something. Like buying human beings, there's a very evil way to do that. Chattel slavery. Uh, the, the old-fashioned term, man-stealing. Okay, that's evil. But there's a very beautiful way to purchase someone because it's not to purchase someone as your property that you're going to use. But it's to purchase someone to rescue them. Even when you had no need of, of that person's presence or that relationship, to purchase them to rescue them. God takes that term that's, and I'm going to talk about this in a second, that's already built into God's law that people can do with each other and that Boaz does towards this family. And he applies it to himself. That I, I bought you and I didn't buy you because you need to do something for me. Or because I, I was needy and you feel some need in me. I bought you to rescue you. So again, I, I, I'm, I'm going to belabor this point a little bit. I don't want to use this account as an allegory. But because we don't talk in the language of redemption that much, it's a window into what is a redemption. So let's look at that. I want to look at just the background of redemption and then the redemption itself. I do have to say this on the front end. This passage is kind of PG-13. And maybe, you know, as you were hearing it read, you may have read it before, or maybe hearing it for the first time, you thought, huh, that was interesting how that started. And, man, commentary after commentary brought this up, that Naomi is, she's not a cartoon character, and we said, you know, she's done some things that show great character, She's not just the neurotic mother-in-law. So she is trying to, to do right for her daughter-in-law. I want you to be okay. And look, okay for you is probably going to involve that you have a husband now that you've lost your husband, my son. But her advice is this. Wash yourself and perfume yourself. And then go to the threshing floor where Boaz is. Uh, and, and be there at night when they're through feasting. You know, this was toward the end of harvest time, so they're kind of having the equivalent of a harvest feast, and maybe also staying there in the night as the, you know, the bundles and the piles and the sheaves are out there for security. But they're going to feast together, and then they'll lay down in the field. Go to him at night, and then, did you catch this part? And then he'll tell you what to do. Furrowed brow. And th this could have gone wrong in so many ways. Like, okay, first off, she could have been assaulted before she ever got there. This is during the time of the judges. Extremely uh, unruly time in the history of Israel. There are descriptions of sexual assault in the book of Judges. That's the cultural setting. So that was dangerous, and that's an ancient problem. It could have totally backfired. She could have gone there, made it to... His side, Boaz's side, and being a man of character, he might have been so offended as to say, how dare you do that? How presumptuous of you, and it completely backfire, leave a bad taste in his mouth. Or, back the other way, he's a red-blooded man. He could have taken advantage of her, and then because he's the guy with the, the field, he's the landowner, he's the, he's the man in the community, he could have lied about it. But there's just all kinds of ways it could have gone wrong. And all I know to say is, it's a, it's a truthful account of what happened. Naomi said, wash, perfume yourself, go to the field. And so here's what happened. Okay? Just please don't copy her, I guess is what I'm saying. 
Uh, okay, the background. What, what, so what is, what's the deal with all this lingo? I mean, it just, it just is all through the passage. Redeem, redeem, I'm a redeemer. What, what's the story on that? And that goes all the way back to Old Testament law, the law of Moses. And if you're taking notes, Leviticus chapter 25. And that's why we need to read stuff like this, because that's God's Word. And it's the background of all this other stuff. Leviticus 25 talks about what, what do you do if you have an Israelite who just gets what we would call completely underwater financially. They are just, they're up a creek. They can't grow enough, raise enough, harvest enough to get out. And, and what's going to happen is they're going to have to liquidate their land, which means it can pass into another family and it just upsets the whole apple cart. What do you do? And God built in a law to say this. If you find yourself in that situation, a close relative, blood kin, can be your redeemer. Now again, think purchase. Think, don't think forgiveness of sins. That person can step in and it might look like they just buy the field or they take over payment or whatever that means. They, they slowly pay off your debtors. But that person steps in and financially they just rescue you from dire straits. And it gives different scenarios for what that might look like or what you sell. That's the Redeemer. And it's interesting because this was a package deal. I don't know if you caught that. Look in chapter 4, verse 5. This is when Boaz is talking to this unnamed other Redeemer who's a closer relative. So he's talking to him. He's got the elder sitting there. Chapter 4, verse 5. Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And this hooks up with another Old Testament law, which was if you've got a man, Israelite man, has a wife, he passes away, they had no children. Now this may shock your sensibilities, or I don't know. The brother was supposed to father a child with her so that they have a legacy, that they have descendants and the family name doesn't die out. Boaz is saying, hey, look, if you buy this property of Naomi's family, you also get Ruth and you are to do your duty by her. So it's a package deal. When, uh, when I was growing up in grade school, we, uh, grade school years, we, we bought a house and it sat on the largest, I think, yard I'll ever have, six acres, and it came with a German shepherd named Machen. And so the understanding was whoever buys this house, you also get Machen because she has to stay here and we're going somewhere small. And it was a package deal. So we got Machen, who is now in heaven. <laughs> by merit. <laughs> Not by grace. And for those of you with different theological views, please refrain from... Um, emailing me this week because because <laughs> I'm orthodox. I don't know what you are, but I'm orthodox on that particular point. And I, but before we get into the, to the, to more the, into the account, I wanted to say this. Why is that law on the books? Why is there a law about what to do if you're up a creek financially or this family's about to just be in complete financial crisis? This can happen. This person can step in. God's already thought of it and put a law on the books. Why is that? And, you know, what, what's the secret to education? Repetition, repetition, repetition. 
what does God keep saying in His Word? What keeps coming up, even in the law of God, what does He keep saying? That He cares about what someone has called the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. Over and over and over. What about the poor? What about the widow? What about the fatherless? What about the alien, the sojourner? And we've got to keep hearing that, that that is what God is like. Because What happens every Christmas season is that charity stuff spikes, and a service project spike, or bring money to the office to raise it for... All that spikes at Christmas time, and we can sort of feel like this is a feel-good thing to do during a feel-good time of year. And the reality is, this is supposed to be in the DNA of our spirituality. Not because we have such good impulses and we're so committed to justice. It's because God is. And it's built into His law. And again, I... Lest we look at this story, and I think I've said some version of this every week, lest we look at this story and just turn it into a morality play, let's remember, where does all the goodness come from? Because it's easy to stand up here and say, okay, like we live in a day when you know men should be taking care of women, and they don't take care of women. And they should be the knight in shining armor, protecting them from the dragon, but too many times men are the dragon, and men shouldn't be like the dragon, and be like Boaz. So that's the big takeaway. Why was Boaz Boaz? God had been gracious to Boaz, and God's character flavored what he was like, how he treated people. That's the background, okay? And it's it's our background as well. So what about the redemption itself? And I want to look at three things here. You know, there's there's so much detail we'd like to have. How old is Boaz? How old is Ruth? Was there a spark between them or not? Was he an older bachelor? Was he a widower? I mean, there's all this stuff we'd like to know, and it's not provided. So let's just go with what we know. If, if Boaz is fleshing out, what does a redeemer do? What does redemption look like? What are some things that we see? And let me throw out three. First off, It did not arise from neediness. It did not arise from neediness. I want you to look back, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to throw this in for no no extra charge. When it said that he he had feasted, and and Naomi said, Now don't go find him till he's feasted and eat and drunk. And, you know, it says that his heart was merry. You may be wondering, is that sort of a cheery Old Testament way of saying that he's hammered and and sleeping in in the field? He's woken out of a dead sleep and is extremely lucid. So I think his heart was merry within biblical parameters, we might say. But he's woken up at midnight and he's very clear with, with Ruth. And one of the things he's clear about, look in verse 12. He says, now it's true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's a Redeemer nearer than I. And you've got to be careful with that sentence, because that sentence, there's a, a, a Redeemer nearer than I. When you look at that with New Testament eyes, you can almost picture that he kind of becomes Charlton Heston in that moment, like, and yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Like he's looking off at a cross off in the distance. 
that all he's saying is, I'm not your closest relative. That's all he's saying. But then he says this, verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if, if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And then when he actually talks to the unnamed redeemer, he says that. He says, I wanted to make sure that you knew about your position as the closest relative to this family in crisis. Now, there's a cynical way to look at this, and I think a better way to look at it. The cynical way might be, well, you know, Boaz might have been a really good poker player. And he might have just looked at the circumstances and thought, he's not going to buy that. So I'll throw it out there for form, pro forma, but that's not going to happen. And then I'll get, that's not really the way the text comes. The way the text comes to us is he says, both to Ruth and to this man, if he'll redeem you, that's fine. And if he won't redeem you, I will. But I just want you taken care of. That's the main thing. In other words, and, and we so want to turn this into the Hallmark Channel. We so want to turn it into a run. Maybe there was spark there, maybe not. But he doesn't talk like a person who needs her. That's the first thing. All right, second thing, it's costly. We don't get any info about what he paid, what was asked, how much money does this involve. But there's a lot of talk about there's a purchase to be made, there's a price to be paid. But think about this. When he buys this field, and as he said, if you get the field, you get Ruth as your wife. Whether he's a widower or bachelor or whatever, it's going to change his whole life. It's not just, hey, you're in a pinch... And, uh, and I have means, and let's just kind of let this story have a happy ending. He's changing his life. He's changing his family by being the Redeemer. And for the one redeemed, the ones redeemed, it, it changes everything for them. Uh, as we've said, Ruth was a foreigner. Ruth is a Moabite. And people have talked very kindly to her. They've said things like, my daughter. You know, Boaz calls her my daughter, kind of an ancient Near Eastern way of talking. She wasn't really his daughter. And, you know, she said to her mother-in-law, I'm not going back to my home country. Uh, nothing but death is going to keep me away from me. If I, your God is going to be my God, and, and your people are going to be my people. Big goodbye to Moab. But she couldn't just unilaterally declare herself to be an Israelite. But man, when Boaz married her, and that field and property and family setting was redeemed, and the community of Bethlehem knows it, she's an Israelite. And we've mentioned the spoiler every week, so I'll mention it again. She becomes part of the genealogy, not only of King David, but the Messiah. Changed everything for her. Now, what about us? What about uh, if this is a window into redemption and God is the Redeemer? What do we see about redemption? Let's use those same three things. God didn't and doesn't need us. 
had a friend who was visiting one of those big caverns, underground caves. I think it was in Kentucky. And uh, they brought the tour group in, turned the lights out, pitch black, can't see your face, uh, can't see your hand in front of your face. Big booming voice comes on and says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God was lonely and made people. Okay, statement number one, true. Statement number two, false. To have need is to have deficiency. To have need is to have lack. God has no lack. God has no deficiency. He did not create human. He had perfect bliss and connection and joy and understanding within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And He makes people that He did not need. And people fall. And we create this breach in the relationship. Does he need to redeem us? No. And what does he do? He goes after us to bring us back into that loving relationship when he does not need us. And it's costly. What is the most valuable substance in the world? What is it? Diamonds? Platinum? Some super rare element with some super rare application. The most precious substance in the world is the blood of the God-man. The blood of Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God got no great benefit by becoming, in God the Son, a man and remaining right now a man. That there is flesh seated at the right hand of God the Father. Did that benefit him? No. Did he need that? No. Was it costly forever? But he pays it. And it changes the lives and everything about the lives of the redeemed forever. When God says... You're my child. He's not just being affectionate. He's not just pretending. When you believe in Jesus and trust Him to be your Redeemer and He adopts you to come into His family, you are actually His child. You are actually in the family of God. Though a sinner, though fallen, though ungrateful, Everything has changed, and He buys all of us. He buys our soul. He didn't, he's not purchasing something that's not His already. But it's ratified and established in the heavens that I belong body and soul to my Redeemer. God owns your body. What's the great thing about sexual purity? So we can be goody-two-shoes and look down on the impure? Because God owns our bodies. And God owns our souls. It's like one person once said, for the believer, prayer is your native tongue. I'm not doing this unnatural activity. I'm doing the thing that my soul was made to do and bought to do. How should that grab us? And how can it change us? Let me share this, then I'm done. Um, 
friend of mine, his older brother, OBGYN, and when he was uh, getting down the OBGYN track in med school, at some point, you know, you got to be there and watch a live birth because you got to do that. And so he, he was not a dad at that point, so he had never seen a live birth up close and personal. So the uh, students were there, and they watched a live birth, and they finished that day. And he went immediately from med school to a florist and bought a dozen roses and took them to his mom. <laughs> True story. And, of course, it's not like doing that repays her, you know, like, hey, here, here's a fair trade for carrying me for nine months and childbirth and, you know, just the agony and ecstasy of raising me. It just was a gesture that came out of, okay, new categories for you caring about me. <laughs> Jesus says, abide in my word and you'll bear much fruit. Why do we need to abide in things like he's, he's our redeemer? Why do I need to marinate, even if it's just in that sentence, that Jesus bought me because it bears fruit? He doesn't need our obedience. We're not going to do anything volunteer-wise or service-wise or financially in Christmas or the year in that earns any brownie points with God. But when it grabs us that just to be blunt, God, if it had been me, I wouldn't have married me. I wouldn't have bought me. But you bought me, and you married me. And all I bring is the sin. That that can change how you work and what kind of next-door neighbor you are and what kind of church member you are. It changes everything. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, place your seed of your word upon good soil and cause it to bear fruit. For the man or woman or child here who has has never said, Jesus, you're my redeemer, be my redeemer, has never believed, give Give that person today saving faith and great assurance. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.